Some of you will know that our dear friend Mo has basically been building a house to live in over these last few months. And one of the things that we've learned from Mo, we've learned a lot from Mo this year, some of you know that, but one of the things we've learned is that you need to make sure that the foundations are good. We've seen the ground being prepared. We've seen uh, tankers arrive and concrete be poured. We've seen levels being set with lasers. And it's all necessary, apparently, to make sure that the structure is solid. Well, over the last two weeks, I think what we've seen uh, in Exodus chapter 34 is God doing exactly what Mo's been doing. God laying a foundation. God lays there a very deep foundation that stretches across the whole of the Bible and down the years of history. We've seen uh, in Exodus chapter 34, and particularly in verses 6 and 7, that God tells Moses who he really is. And so far, we've learned two balancing truths about God. First, that astonishing kindness is at the very heart of God's character. And second, that we mustn't confuse that with God being weak or soft in some way. His love is vast, but he's not a pushover. God is both wonderfully compassionate and yet strong in ultimately conquering evil. And we also saw, particularly last week, that this glorious goodness reaches its towering pinnacle in Jesus. The cross of Jesus is where God's infinite love and his perfect justice are resolved and become seamless. Well, the rest of the Bible stands on this foundation in Exodus chapter 34. And our task now is to ask, what difference does it make? We've seen the foundation being laid. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 are quoted over and over again, word for word, throughout the Old Testament, as God's people keep coming back to these words. I, I was thinking about this. In a way, these verses are like a compass, a giant compass. Even when you shake it, once you stop shaking it, the needle settles and points to magnetic north. It seems that God reveals himself in Exodus 34 to forever center and anchor his people. God is saying to his people, remember always that this is who I am. How then does God's hesed, his kindness that is both astonishing and strong, shape his people? Today, I want to highlight one very, very simple truth, and it's this. The fact that God is full of hesed means that we can come to him. His love and compassion and faithfulness, his astonishing kindness is our invitation to pray in the confidence that God hears us. 
That means that you can come to him bringing your sins and fears and burdens because he is full and overflowing with hesed. The fact that God is astonishingly kind is an open door for us to come through to God. Why does this matter? I think it matters because so often, I think if we're honest, we have dark thoughts of God. I wonder whether we have this lurking suspicion sometimes that God is somehow out to get us or that he's waiting for us to trip up and make mistakes. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, so often we find ourselves hiding in the shadows, cradling our shame, unable to quite believe that God would treat us kindly. Dale Ortland, in his wonderful new little book, it only came out this year, called Gentle and Lowly, says that the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. Ortland says this is hard work. It takes lots of sermons and thinking. Sometimes it takes lots of suffering and pain to unlearn who we often think God is and to relearn from who God actually says that he is. Ortland suggests that the greatest victory of evil in our lives is not so much the sins that we regularly indulge in, but the the dark thoughts about God that cause us to go there in the first place. And that keep us cool towards him afterwards. Friends, we need reminding and reassuring that we can come to God precisely because he is astonishingly kind. So let's try and open up this idea under two simple headings this afternoon. I think one way of looking at Exodus chapter 34 is to see that God gives to Moses a completely new understanding of who he is. It's mind-blowing and awesome. In the darkest moments of failure and brokenness, God reveals himself to Moses as compassionate and forgiving. And Moses is changed by what he hears from God. And the first words that come out of his mouth prove it. Because he responds to this revelation by asking God for something that he knows the people don't deserve. Moses' great fear, of course, was that having made this golden calf, worshipped a false god, Moses' great fear that would, that was that God would abandon them and not go with them. But now, in this moment, having heard this revelation from God, Moses asks for Hesed because now he knows he can. Because God is full of compassion, 
Those who don't deserve anything can go to him for everything. This is a new and life-changing understanding of God. And Moses' reaction of then asking for what he knows they don't deserve is the start of a pattern. This pattern follows Moses through his life and it appears throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We, we could spend all week on this. But let me just give you three examples from many we could pick. One from Moses and we'll see two others. One year later, after this episode in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai, God brings his people to the brink of the promised land. Over a million people. And God, in his great kindness, brings them to the border of the promised land. And they refuse to go in. Because they're frightened. You can read all about them literally falling apart in the book of Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and God is angry with their ungratefulness and, and, their, and their unbelief and disobedience but listen to how Moses prays now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you declared the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses prays to God with confidence, quoting exactly what God said to him a year before at Mount Sinai. And then Moses prays this. In accordance with your great love, your, your great hesed, forgive the sins of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. I love that phrase, according to your great love. It's as if Moses prays, oh God, we are so sorry that we are like what we're like. But would you hear us on the basis of what you yourself are like? Moses asks for hesed because now he knows he can. I just want to make a very brief digression here. There's an important sidebar here that actually is a perfect illustration of Exodus 34. God is kind, but not soft. God does forgive and will ultimately fulfill all of his great promises to his people here, but it is very striking and interesting that first what God does is send his people, his disobedient people, back into the desert for 40 years. In the 1940s, the British author C.S. Lewis wrote a little book that was called The Great Divorce. And in this little book, he, he writes it as a story and there's dialogue in there. And he's imagining what heaven and hell are like. 
And in this book, Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. You get that difference. There's two kinds of people. One group say to God, your will be done. And the other group, God says to them, your will be done. Numbers chapter 14 is a great example of that principle. God brings his people to the brink of the promised land. And it certainly was God's will for them to enter it and enjoy it. But instead of trusting and obeying God and gladly saying to God, your will be done. They refused. And the alternative was for God to say to them, okay, your will be done. Which meant that a whole generation would ultimately die in the desert. And their unbelief obviously affected the following generations, the children and grandchildren who had to wait 40 years before they could come into the promised land. The whole episode in Numbers chapter 14 is not the end of the nation. It isn't the end of God's promises to them. But there were big consequences to their disobedience. It is as if God was teaching his people that no one can ever say, it doesn't matter what we do because God will forgive us anyway. So again we see the foundation of Exodus 34, the same principle that God is faithful and kind, but he cannot be mocked. Well, back to our main idea that God's kindness is our invitation to pray. How about this one? There's a great example in the book of Nehemiah. I think this is over a thousand years later, where his people again call to mind this Exodus foundation and they pray these words to God. You can see them on the screen here. Our forefathers refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, love. Therefore, you did not desert them. This is how God's people prayed. Oh God, you told us that you are full of hesed to those who don't deserve it. You told us that you are kind to the unworthy. Because this is who you are, please hear our cry for mercy. One last example. You might also remember King David's great prayer of confession in Psalm 51 where he actually uses the word hesed. Psalm 51 starts with these words. David praying, have mercy on me, O God. Why? According to your hesed. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Do you see the pattern? Because God is full of hesed, we can go to him. 
Because God is a forgiving and a compassionate God, even sinners can come to him to find forgiveness and love when they come. The great foundation that God lays in Exodus chapter 34 means that God's people have always been able to ask for what they don't deserve because now they know that they can. This raises the possibility of us ourselves having a new posture before God. Secondly, a new posture before God. Let's try and bring this a little closer to him by looking briefly then at the narrative that Graham so helpfully read for us in Luke chapter 7. Turn with me there, if you will, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here. Luke chapter 7. And verse 1 to 10. You'll know that many times in the Gospels. We're told. That the crowds were amazed. By Jesus. They heard his words. They saw his deeds. And they were regularly. Astonished. But here's a question. We've seen the people amazed at Jesus. What would it take. To amaze Jesus. What would it take for Jesus to go, wow, look at that. Did you see that? What would it take to astonish him? In Luke chapter 7, we find out. Jesus is completely bowled over. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Wow. Can you imagine Jesus going, whoa, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. He's bowled over by a Roman centurion that actually in the narrative he never even gets to meet. So one of the centurion's servants falls seriously ill and he's on the brink of dying. The centurion sends friends to Jesus but there's a very striking contrast in the narrative. Just look with me at verse 4. When these friends came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. And they said, this man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And Jesus goes with them. This man deserves to have you do this. But the centurion seems to change his mind. And as Jesus comes to his house, the centurion sends a second group of friends. And look at the message from the centurion that they pass on the second time. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. His friends start by pleading his worthiness. Please come, he deserves it. And then the centurion himself sends other friends and says, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. But here's the thing I want you to notice. His sense of unworthiness doesn't stop him from being bold and asking Jesus for, to, to heal his servant. In fact, this man's faith in Jesus is absolutely stunning. 
The centurion's logic is so simple, isn't it? I'm in charge. I've got authority over soldiers. When I say jump, they jump. So don't trouble yourself, Jesus. I trust that you have authority. So just say the word and the power of your word will be enough to heal my servant. When Jesus heard this, he went, wow. Absolutely stunned. Here is a man who combines an awareness of his own unworthiness with big, bold faith. And I think the thing that shocks and amazes Jesus is the man's readiness to ask confidently for what he knows he doesn't deserve. This has to be one of the greatest examples of what Hesed will do to you when you grasp it. The person who understands that God is full of Hesed will come to him to ask boldly for what they know they do not deserve. This man avoids two opposite extremes here, doesn't he? On the one hand, his sense of unworthiness could have kept him from coming to Jesus. But on the other, when he does come, he doesn't plead his own worthiness. His posture is both humble and confident, not trusting himself, but trusting in the love and power of Christ. I was preparing this week uh, to, to talk to you today and um, but I found out yesterday morning that one of my friends is also preaching this very day on this same passage how about that and the reason I know that is because they posted on Facebook yesterday morning really looking forward to preaching on Luke 7 tomorrow morning I thought wow so am I and this is what my friend said in his Facebook post. And I quote, Faith in Jesus is an amazing miracle. And then he says three things. Faith in Jesus is an amazing miracle that number one, recognises that we are unworthy. Secondly, confesses Jesus as Lord. And thirdly, trusts in the power of his word to save. I, I saw that yesterday morning after I'd finished preparing. And I thought, I haven't finished, I'm going to include that. <laughs> it's so good. It remind, when I saw that, it reminded me that this is how all of us becomes a Christian in the first place. There comes a point in our life where we say, I'm unworthy. Jesus is Lord and King. And I'm trusting him to give me what I don't deserve. And in his great kindness, God invites sinners to come to him to ask for the salvation they so desperately need. 
and that he stands so ready to give. Can I ask you this afternoon, all of you and those watching at home, can I ask you, have you trusted in Jesus like this? But isn't this also the way we carry on in our Christian lives? Every single day. We can keep coming to God because he is full of hesed. The question is, are you running to God because you know that he is good? Or are you running from God because you suspect somehow that he isn't? Sometimes I feel like the story of my own life has been one of putting all of the sorry broken pieces in a great big fat wheelbarrow and taking it all to Jesus and being stunned over and over again at his generous faithful strong and wise love John Newton is famous he lived in the 1700s famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace he was a slave trader he was converted and apparently as he was dying he said this my memory is fading but I remember two things very clearly I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour you don't need much more than that let me close today then with these encouraging words from Hebrews chapter 4 just towards the end of that chapter the writer to the Hebrews says this let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need do you see that the throne of God here is described as a throne of grace it's built on the foundation of Exodus chapter 34 the astonishing kindness of God is your invitation to pray be encouraged to come